Hey, good morning, church. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 7 today, uh, but before, I just want to remind you that, um, of course, you're watching this online or, or listening to it, but we are having services every Sunday morning in person, live, um, outdoors. If you want the details on that, uh, the time and the place, because it's not at this building, then reach out and um, email me, Facebook message, what, whatever. You can figure those things out and we'll get you the time and the place for that service. Uh, but if you've got to be home for a while and you're unable to join us on a Sunday, then don't worry, I'll be filming these sermons from my office specifically and specially for you for as long as need be. And of course, you can also get the same sermon in podcast form if you'd rather listen to it and not have your computer right there or on YouTube or on Facebook page on our website, blah, 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 blah. You can find all those things. I'm sure you can figure it out. Um, but go ahead and, and turn to John chapter 7. We'll be uh, starting in verse 37. And I'm going to pull it up here and get a drink. Starting in verse 37, please. On the, on the last day, that great day, of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore many of the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, I said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. And that verse really belongs to the next story, but we'll tack it on here so we can feel like we finished the chapter. Um, let's pray. Jesus, we ask that uh, we would hunger and thirst after righteousness and then be filled. We pray that even as we seek all of our satisfaction in you, um, you are the fulfillment of all our hopes. You're the, the, um, the fulfillment of every promise. We pray as we seek you in your word, we would be uh, hungry and thirsty. We would have an appetite that only you can uh, fulfill. And we have a thirst that only you can quench. Bless our time in your word as we, the church, gather around your word, even in different places. You're the common factor here uh, in our worship, in our, in, in our lives. And so we look to you and enjoy fellowship with each other and with you. Bless this, this sermon, uh, our understanding of your word, and bless your church. Amen. Amen. Now back in John chapter 5, Verse 24, Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Almost got that wrong. And in the next verse, he says, The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And when we talked about that passage, I pointed out that this is a reference Jesus was making to Isaiah chapter 55, where God himself says to Israel, Give ear to 
and listen to me. Sorry, give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Life coming from hearing is something that you see uh, throughout the scriptures, actually. Uh, the just shall live by faith, Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 17. Uh, but as I continued studying in John, it became evident that Jesus was staying in this Isaiah 55 section of Scripture. He keeps on referencing this passage or quoting from this chapter or the chapter before, the same section of Scripture. He keeps on um, mentioning Isaiah 55 or 54. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then tells them, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. That's John 6, 27. But in Isaiah 55, it says, Why spend money on that which is not bread, and your labor on that on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is echoing this truth from Isaiah, and explaining it, and, and clarifying it, and expounding on it. That he, He's saying that, that there are things that don't satisfy. You know, there's bread, and then there's true bread. There's the bread of life. There's things that satisfy short-term, but then there's things that satisfy long-term and in the deepest part of your soul. And in John chapter 6, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54 later on, saying, It is written in the prophets that they, and they shall all be taught by God. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 54. Well, this theme of Isaiah 55 and 54, it continues now into John chapter 7, where Jesus stands up and says, For all to hear, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That comes straight out of Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, each of these times, Jesus welcomes people into his riches, into the riches that he has to offer. And every time he does, he is making a claim to deity. Because in every single one of those verses in Isaiah, it's God himself speaking to Israel. It is the Lord who says, come to me, I will satisfy you. And here it's no one but Jesus saying the same things. It's Jesus saying, now you come to me and I'll satisfy you. Now throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is presented as the ultimate fulfillment of every hope and every promise, and even the menial physical longings like hunger and thirst, things that we experience every day, Jesus says, I'll satisfy those things to the nth degree. I'm the bread of life. I give living water. You'll never be thirsty again. You know, this began, of course, with the woman at the well, and it continues through to here and, and uh, you know, Jesus' first miracle, it was turning water to wine. It was a miracle of uh, celebration and still satisfying of, of a thirst, of a longing. And then in the last of the seven I am statements in John, it's Jesus telling his disciples, I am the vine. He's always the source. He is always the end. He is the one who promises and the one who fulfills all the promises. He is the one who satisfies. And by, by referencing Isaiah 55, Jesus is placing God's words rightly in his own mouth. But he is speaking also to the emotions and the longings of the people's hearts. All of their prophets and all of their laws and all of their feasts, like the one they were celebrating right now, the Feast of Tabernacles, all of these things were feasts and laws and prophecies of anticipation and hope and longing. 
You know, the, the whole culture of BC Judaism is one that leans forward in its seat, that anticipates, that sits on the edge and looks forward, and then Jesus says, lean just a little bit further and I'll catch you. And, and he's here saying loudly and clearly, I will satisfy that longing that you've been developing for a few thousand years. One of the purposes of the Old Testament for the believer, for you and I, is to, to make us hungry and thirsty and to enter into the hunger and the thirst and the anticipation that was the time before Christ. And one of the blessings Jesus offers us in himself is the satisfaction of all of those hungers and thirsts and longings. Jesus satisfies. Now, I want you to see how he presents this truth because uh, it turns out there's a whole lot more than just saying, if you're thirsty, come get a drink. The time and the place matter a great deal. And there's a lot of symbolism here that really brings out the richness in what Christ is saying. In verse 37, it says that this happened on the last day of the great feast. And, and verse 2 of chapter 7 tells us what feast it was. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, or, or sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. This was a feast to commemorate the wilderness wanderings of the Jews after the Exodus. It was a time when they would be reminded of God's faithfulness to them, of his provision for them during their time in the wilderness. And it was a seven-day feast plus one, okay? Uh, I know that's kind of weird, but that's what it was. So it was seven days, and then there was an extra day. Seven days of feasting, but then there was another day called a holy convocation, an extra day, which sometimes would be called the eighth day of the feast or the last day of the feast. It's probably this day, this last day, when Jesus stands up and offers his invitation. The eighth day uh, was a sort of a Sabbath. Leviticus says that on this day there was no work to be done. You weren't allowed to go to work. In the book of Ezra, we read that on this eighth day of the feast, there was an assembly. Uh, so it, uh, it's a gathering of all the people together in one place for, for worship and prayer. And during the previous seven days, um, the seven proper days, the real feast, the one-week feast, the feast was celebrated with your family outdoors. And that was sort of the fun thing about this feast. It was all done camping. Uh, in fact, the fancy word tabernacle is really just the word for tent. That's all it means. It's a tent. It's the Feast of Tents. And um, it's called the, the you know Feast of Tabernacles because people would get their branches and their boughs from trees and make little forts in their yard, little shelters there, and stay in there for a week. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and, and this feast specifically had more uh, feasting properly than any of the others. It had more animal sacrifices per family than any other feast. So there's a lot of grilling Every day there's a barbecue, and I know that a barbecue might not seem like reverent worship for some of you, but you have to understand that that was definitely part of the deal for them. You know, there were parts of the sacrifices that were eaten, and it's not like these people were getting red meat every other week during the year either. So this is a special occasion. This is a feast. It's a camping party for seven days. But then... On the last day, the eighth day, you would take down your tent, uh, your booth, and all your family, all your families would gather together for a kind of worship service. And this was a more, uh, more reverent event. The Jewish historian Philo says that this day was a somber conclusion, not of that feast alone, but of all the feasts in the year. You won't read this in the scriptures, but rabbinical tradition tells us that the eighth day often included 
uh, excuse me, included fasting, both from food and water, for the whole day. So when Jesus stands up in the presence of all these people and says, Are you thirsty yet? He knows they are. Now also, a, a tradition had developed in Jerusalem by this time that for the first seven days, a pitcher of water was ceremoniously filled at the Pool of Siloam and carried to the altar at the temple and poured out. And this was to remind people how God had miraculously brought them water. He had miraculously provided them with water from a rock. But on the eighth day, this ceremony was not done. People were left thirsty. And part of the worship of that day was to pray for water. And Jesus hears their prayers. And Jesus stands up and addresses a thirsty people and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is, this is said loudly and clearly for all to hear. Now, if it was a holy convocation, Jesus is not saying this just on the street corner, like the crazy prophet with the cardboard sign or something. He's not just saying this to his friends, his disciples. This isn't just for Peter, James, and John. This is for the nation. And, and this is one of the only times in the Gospels when it mentions that Jesus lifts his voice. He's, he's saying this for the people in the back. You know, the, the overall tone of the ministry of Jesus outside this story is very level or even hushed. You know, he's, he's always bringing his disciples by and explaining to the, them and, and, you know, in secret what he really meant. He's, he tells people, don't say what happened here. It's not time for that yet. Isaiah 42 verse 4 says, He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. But this is the time to cry out. When the call is, come to Jesus, it's okay to add a little bit of volume. So Jesus cries out loudly, not just for the inner circle, but for anyone who could hear, everyone who could hear. This is for the whosoevers. He says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone of any and all tribes, tongues, nations, political affiliations, socioeconomic classes, if you are thirsty, you are pre-qualified to come to me. The only prerequisite for this refreshing living water is thirst. That's what you have to offer. That's what you bring to the table of the Lord. Longing and thirst and hunger and emptiness. When you go to make a deal with God, the only thing of substance that you bring is, it's really your sin. Uh, it's a prerequisite for forgiveness, just the, way, the same way death is a prerequisite for resurrection. Um, but the state of the sinful soul that comes to Christ knows something of its deep need. It hungers, it thirsts. And, and it is for those who are discontent in this way that Jesus calls, if anyone thirsts. Now, when King David, uh, before he was officially king, he was anointed but not crowned. And when King David was running from Saul, the king, who was trying to kill him, trying to track him down and, and, 
and and murder him really and David was building his little band of soldiers and the Bible speaks of these men in less than flattering terms uh, it says and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him it's a great bunch of guys okay they're bitter and bankrupt and and depressed you know <laughs> and that's who David gathers to himself for his men and David the king foreshadows Jesus, the son of David, in this way because Jesus asks for the hungry and for the thirsty. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says, for, considering, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Why are there not many wise? Why are there not many of noble birth? Because it takes a knowledge of your lack and your, your infinite need to be thirsty. It takes that sense of need to be thirsty, and the qualification for coming to Christ is want. It is desperation. So Jesus says, anyone who thirsts, and he says this knowing that the, the audience, his, the crowd, had not had a drink of water since the night before, and he knows that everyone gets thirsty. Now, if you're thirsty, says Jesus, come to me and drink. And he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Believing in Jesus is once again tied to this idea of coming to Jesus. Um, this has been consistent through John's gospel, but throughout he adds, you know, another shade through metaphor and comparison uh, to help us understand what it is to believe. He compares believing to eating bread, and now he compares believing to uh, drinking water. And in both cases, it's to believe, we see it's to commit to internalizing. Uh, it's something extremely easy. Everyone eats, everyone drinks, but it is not something you can do halfway. Chewing and spitting out is gross, and it's not eating. Rinsing your mouth isn't drinking. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, you come to me and drink. And the idea is certainly that you are committed to Jesus for the satisfaction of all your thirsts, of all your longings. And then he promises not only satisfaction, um, but, but a usefulness. He, he, he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You become a source, not just a receptacle. And here's an interesting thing. Jesus says, as the scripture has said, but what follows is not a direct quote from scripture. He's not saying chapter and verse. He's sharing a basic idea. And this could be from Isaiah 55. Um, Isaiah 55 verse 10 says, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return, but uh, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now you can kind of see the, the picture here. God says that his word is like rain in the snow in that it produces a harvest. In the same way, the word that Jesus offers, which satisfies thirst, enters the heart of the believer and it produces a spring of its own. Now there's another verse about pouring water on the thirsty. In Isaiah 44, verse 3, it says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. So you see that the water is the spirit here, which is the same that we see in John. But whatever... Christ is referencing or alluding to, Jesus is telling the thirsty people that when they come to him, they will not only have enough, 
but they will become a secondary source of water. They'll become the conduit. And isn't that just the way with our salvation? Jesus saves us and he satisfies us and he gives us himself generously without restraint and we find all our life and our hope in him. But then he doesn't leave us there. He changes us and transforms us. It is his will for us believers to be the conduit of his grace to a thirsty world. He gives the water, he gives the spirit, but then he employs us to do the same. And that's not an isolated incident. This isn't the only place where Jesus talks like this. In in chapter 8, the next chapter, we'll we'll see Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And the obvious cross-reference, which ought to show up in your mind, is Matthew 5.14 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Now, we want to back up from that, don't we? We don't feel quite worthy of that, um, that kind of title. Or we can believe that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the city on the hill. You know, but, but then we are commissioned to be the light of the world. Same thing happening here. Of course, Jesus can welcome thirsty people to himself. Of course, Jesus can give the spirit to those who are, are thirsty for him. But so can you. Why do you think Jesus left a church on the world in the first place? To be the body of Christ. To be the conduit for this living water. To address a thirsty world. And and, and that water, as we've seen already, is the Holy Spirit. We'll read from John again. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's promising the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this would happen in Acts chapter 2. When the, the Holy Spirit uh, would, would fall on the church and then indwell the believer. The Spirit has fallen on the church and now exists within every believer in the heart of the Christian. But that was not something that existed for believers under the Old Covenant. And we'll, we'll get into the mechanics of that a whole lot more in John 14. But I will read from John 14 verse 16. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit was with them, would be, but would be, future tense, looking forward after the resurrection, would be in them. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, John knows what he's talking about here, and he's able to put this little helpful editorial note, because John was one of the thirsty ones, who had since been quenched, had his thirst quenched by the satisfying spirit of the living God. But of course, not everyone understands where Jesus is going with this. And as usual, his words prove to be confusing and divisive. So verse 40, it says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. More division. We saw this in the last chapter. We're going to see it through the end of the gospel. Jesus brings a sword. He brings division. Everyone's got an opinion about Jesus. You know, some of the opinions were even correct. Some people said, uh, this is the Christ. But having an opinion isn't the same thing as, you know, internalizing, drinking the water, eating the bread of life. Having an opinion about Christ is not the same thing as following him and trusting him or loving him with heart, mind, and strength. Um, And it seems that, you know, looking looking over the, the ministry of Jesus and the rejection that he would ultimately suffer, that this statement that maybe he's the Christ that isn't really a statement of faith. 
Um, you know, there were those who say, we know you're from God, but they didn't worship him. There were those in the last chapter, just the last chapter, who said, this is our king, but they didn't bow down to him. So now there's those who say, this is the Christ, but it seems to be more of an opinion that is held for the sake of de debate or speculation rather than commitment and worship. But we do know that the Holy Spirit was drawing some because we're reminded of Nicodemus at the end of the chapter and he's getting thirsty. Uh, but first, there's this argument. There are people who reject the idea that Jesus is the Christ because he's from Galilee. And they knew that the prophecies about the Messiah said he was coming from Bethlehem. Now, when you read that or heard me read it, you should have said right away, well, Jesus is from Bethlehem. Didn't they know that? And, you know, we know that from Matthew and Luke, and, and it, this would not have been a big, deep secret. There is no shame in being born in Bethlehem. It's the city of David. It's a pretty cool thing. It wouldn't have been difficult for them to find out that Joseph's family was from Bethlehem. You know, Joseph went there for the census, and so that people knew their family trees. Jesus had plenty of extended family all over the place who could have just spoken up and said, oh no, yeah, he's definitely from Bethlehem. It's almost like they were not even willing to inquire. They're not willing to honestly investigate. They don't want to ask the right questions. If that was really the thing holding them back from believing Jesus to be the Messiah, they would have at least, you know, done a quick Google search. Where was Jesus born? And, but they're not interested. And the fact that they don't make the honest investigation tells us something. They're not thirsty. They're not thirsty. They're not longing for what Christ has to offer. And you have to know this about people. The world is not somehow divided clearly into believers and skeptics. That's a false dichotomy. That's not the way the scripture talks about the human soul. And these people aren't skeptics that need an answer given to them. They're rebels. That's how people are spoken of in scripture. That's how we are described in scripture. These aren't curious people waiting for answers. They're enemies of God grasping at their defenses. And we forget this sometime, and we can rely perhaps too much on the argument, on being right, on giving the answer, on the, uh, the apologetics with these kinds of people. I, I mean, if you were there, let's be honest, if you were there, wouldn't you right away just say, but Jesus is from Bethlehem. Ha! So there! What do you have to say for yourself now? You know, but Jesus doesn't say that. It would have been the easiest thing in the world for Jesus or his disciples or for John to write it even. Say, but he was really from Bethlehem, so you can see how dumb these people were. Jesus doesn't say it. John doesn't address it. He doesn't correct their thinking because the problem wasn't with their thinking. It was with their faith. It was with their believing. It was with their hearts. And John is going to show that the ministry of Jesus is having an effect on people who are naturally opposed to him, but it's not because of his clever arguments or the few, uh, you know, quick answers that he could give. Look at verse 45. It says, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Uh, now we know that Jesus was miraculously protected from this attempted arrest like he is in other places and through his ministry. You know, it wasn't the right time for that yet. But it's beautiful to see how he's protected this time. There were orders given for his arrest. And there were officers who were trained for this, who were not, as far as we can tell, incompetent. But when they go to arrest Jesus, instead of arresting him, they listen to him. And their excuse to their bosses is simply that they've never heard anyone speak like Jesus. When Paul writes to the churches from jail and says that even the prison guards had heard the gospel... 
We, we like to imagine Paul just leading all of his bodyguards to Christ. You know, they'd chain him to one guard and he'd get saved, and then they'd have to change the guard, and then the next one they would get saved. And it, it seems to be sort of like that. You know, they sent people to arrest Jesus, but they're so impressed with the way Jesus speaks, they can't do it. They're, they're stunned. They're, in fact, they're so impressed, they wonder if Jesus is something special. When they say, no man ever spoke like this man, there's an emphasis on the second word man at the end of the sentence. It's not necessary, uh, grammatically, just for a sentence to, to mean what it says, but it, it's an emphasis. It seems to uh, offer us insight into the, the tone of voice even. It indicates that they were questioning whether this was a mere man or perhaps something more. And this makes the Pharisees just really upset, of course. And they even show how, you know, uh, how racist and, and elitist they were um, to, to everyone. They said, the Pharisees say, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And then when Nicodemus raises his hand in the back and says, and they're like, are you from Galilee? Because like, as if like that was the most terrible thing about a person, that you could be from Galilee. Um, so there's a little bit of religious snobbery showing here. Elitist Pharisees. You know, if the rulers and Pharisees haven't believed him, how could you possibly take him seriously? They couldn't imagine giving credence to what those, those lowly commoners thought, um, you know, that they were so far beneath them. And, and you see their attitudes just for what they are. Look at the self-satisfaction in these people says, you're deceived if you don't think like us. In fact, you're not only deceived, these people, if they don't know the law as we interpret the law, they are, they are accursed. We're rulers. We're Pharisees. And the crowd, the people who liked Jesus, well, they're just, they're accursed. We have it all, all the knowledge, all the power, all the authority, and they're accursed. And this is why Jesus offers to, this is why Jesus' offer is only to those who thirst. These people aren't thirsty, are they? They have no longings, no appetite for holy things. They have no sense of their own need, no desperation for cleansing, for forgiveness. The reason why so few of the mighty, so few of the wise, so few of the, those of noble birth come to Jesus is because they're, they're, uh, su they've suppressed all the natural appetites with things that don't satisfy, with artificial saviors and counterfeit good things, and they don't know how hungry their soul is. Um, Viktor Frankl, a brilliant psychologist and philosopher who survived uh, being a prisoner in concentration camps in Nazi Germany, he said uh, he came out of that experience um, with a, a lot of great writings, but one of the things he said was when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. And, and Jesus, of course, provides deep, a deep sense of meaning, and he makes the call to people who are at their most undistracted. He chooses this day because no one uh, had, had been eating or drinking. They had been denied the pleasures of life when they fast, so they are thirsty. So now he says, come to me. You're undistracted finally. But there are still those, the Pharisees, who are still so distracted uh, with their own self-worth and with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And it's why Jesus appeals to the Laodicean church in, in Revelation 3, which keeps coming up in our, in our series on John, where Jesus says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
And he says, you need to realize how much you need me. This is the condition of those who are self-satisfied. And their need is to be become reacquainted with their lack, with their need. They need to be undistracted by their pride and by pleasures so that they can see their lack and see Christ's infinite supply. And there is one person among this crowd who is getting close, who is getting thirsty. Verse 51, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Now, again, we, we have all the symptoms of rebellion rather than true skepticism or honest intellectual investigation here. Uh, on, on the part of the Pharisees, they say, No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. That is just factually not true. Um, both Jonah and Elijah were from northern Israel in the Galilee region. So they're not even being honest with themselves. But John doesn't address that, and neither does anyone else. The more interesting part of the close of this chapter is the character Nicodemus. He's already come to Jesus in chapter 3, at night, out of fear of those same people he's talking to now. The people who are trying to get Jesus arrested and then killed. The people who call the crowds accursed because of their interest in and allegiance to Jesus. Nicodemus knows that if he crosses these people, you know, if he crosses the line with these that they've put in the sand, he's out of a job and his reputation would be mud. But we know from John chapter 3, he's thirsty. He's getting more and more thirsty. He's still afraid. He's still cautious, which is preventing him from taking Jesus up on his offer. But he is thirsty. And Nicodemus eventually becomes a perfect example of what it looks like to respond to Jesus' offer. He says, all you who th are thirsty, come unto me. And at Jesus' death, it will be Nicodemus, while all the disciples are hiding, who will go and ask for the body of Christ. It will be Nicodemus, who is the first before Peter and John or Mary or anyone else to make a public stand for Christ, and not a living Christ either. Not a resurrected Savior, a dead one, a crucified one. Jesus has said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Nicodemus was thirsty for that kind of life. He was longing for the promise of those words. And it's people like him to whom Christ cries out loudly. If this passage of scripture does anything to your soul, I hope it's this. I hope it shows you how thirsty you need to be. How thirsty you are. I hope that you can see the damage and the danger of being complacent and full and satisfied in, in the wrong things. There's an unholy complacency, just like there is a holy discontent, an awareness of your lack, your need, your sickness, your nakedness, your poverty, that will drive you to the riches of Christ, freely offered, which will tune your ears to him when he says, I satisfy, I alone satisfy. You know, I hope this passage shows you the truth of Isaiah 51 again, where Jesus says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, you've got nothing. Come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And then you'll find that when you become so supremely satisfied in Him and in His graces, in His water, that this water flows up in you and you become a spring. That's what Jesus says. 
This means that you will then bring the satisfaction and thirst-quenching Spirit of Christ to the world that is dying of thirst. This is his intent, to satisfy you supremely, but not only to satisfy you, but to satisfy the longing and hunger and thirst of the people around you through you. So be thirsty, come to the fountain, be satisfied, and go be a spring. Let's pray. Jesus, you have given us all that we need and more. Uh, you provide us with your spirit generously and produce the fruit of the spirit in our lives. And you've gifted us with your spirit to, to be witnesses to you, Jesus, uh, here in our Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Lord God, we, uh, we worship you. We thank you for this passage and we thank you for how you are faithful to use your church in every state, in every, every season, to accomplish your will. We thank you that your word does not return to you void, but it will accomplish that which it was set forth to do. We love you. We worship you. We seek your blessing. We're thirsty for it. In Jesus' name, amen.